0: Welcome to the Production Talk podcast with me, Jan of mixartist.com.au. In this podcast series, we celebrate the modern way of producing music. We want to talk about all things related to songwriting, recording at home and music production. So if you produce your music at home, this is the place to be. Please subscribe and recommend this podcast to all your friends. This is the Production Talk Podcast, episode 67. Welcome back to another episode of the Production Talk Podcast. At the beginning of this episode, as always, I would like to acknowledge the Arakwal, people of the Bundjalung Nation, as the traditional owners and custodians of the country that we live and work here in the Northern Rivers. I'd like to honor the First Nations people's culture and connection to land, sea and community. And I would like to pay my respects and express my thanks and gratitude to elders past, present and emerging. Over the last two episodes, we've shared lots of stories of the recording and the making of the Flood Songs Project compilation. You've heard from uh, the musicians and of course from myself, from the producers about how how all the recordings came to be. Um, As we speak today, the um, album is still in mastering, so hopefully by the end of the week I have the files and that means I will upload very soon and uh, will be able to give you a release state once it's all up in the cloud. So today I would like to dig a little bit deeper and uh, talk about um, a few things that are very dear to my heart when it comes to recording and uh, I would like to share some recording secrets with you. In the typical style of the production talk podcast, um, the, the... the flat songs compilation was basically produced uh, partially in a high-end studio in Malambimbi. Um, then also in uh, studio in, in students' studios uh, at SAE in Byron Bay, and uh, then of course also in home studios um, at the producers' places and of course at the musicians' places. So basically, it span the entire scale of uh, studio from um, fairly basic home studios to um, yeah the highly. A professional uh, top end studio um, that I operate from in Malambimbi. And uh, um, I would like to go a little bit deeper now and talk about uh, how. I would like to talk about what's on my mind when I um, produce, uh, when I decide to, uh, when I record. And um, hopefully this will be something that is applicable wherever you work, uh, whether this be in a professional studio or at home. So what I would like to talk about is the two magic recording triangles. And that sounds like, uh, yeah, crazy... uh, Stuff at first, but let me please uh, explain a little bit. uh, Let me explain in more detail what I mean. So, the two magic recording triangles are basically relations between three elements that um, affect one another. Um, And there are two of them. The first one has to do with the instrument, the room, and the player. So, they are the three corners of this triangle the instrument, the room, and the player. Okay. Uh, that's the first thing that is on my mind uh, when I set up a recording session um, wherever this may be and um yeah, what this in- includes is uh, the choice of instrument. So in many situations, it is a smart idea to have more than option of uh, more than one option available. So for example, when um, bands come into uh, my studio and bring their own drum kits, which is of course you know um, a, g- a good choice if you have your own sound, um, I still like to experiment and see what happens when we exchange the snare or try different cymbals. Um, if we work on the tuning. Um, so it basically means the first corner of that first triangle is paying attention to the instrument itself and uh, making it uh, as good as it can be, uh, considering options. Sometimes just hearing different things might open up um, you know, a new perspective and that's always good to have. So the first thing is there to really think about, okay, what, what is the right thing to do for this song that we're producing? And sometimes it is as simple as uh, just changing the tuning a little bit or sometimes it means we exchange a snare or some hi-hat cymbals or um, little things like um, considering the kick pedal and choosing um, a plastic beater or a felt beater, uh, which makes a huge difference in in sonic quality. So... um, All of this has to do with a player, of course. If I play a drum set a certain way and then a different player comes and hits the same drum set, it already sounds different. So there's an interaction between the instrument and the player. So the way a player hits uh, the drum set makes it sound differently. So that's the next thing we need to consider there. Now, uh, what's the uh, player's strength? What's the player's style? How does the player um, sit comfortably behind the set? There are lots of things that we want to consider. Um, Ideally, I want to set up a drum set so that the player can um, hit everything perfectly fine with his or her eyes closed every time. So just from muscle memory, but at the same time, we need to consider that um, the placement of the drums and cymbals already has an effect on the sound. And uh, the general rule is that the closer things are uh, together, you know, crammed together in a tight space, um, the poorer the separation between um, the, the signals when they're mic'd up. So, as a practical example, if there is a microphone on a Tom uh, and uh, the crash symbol is placed literally just, you know, two inch above, um, there will always be a lot of bleed from the uh, symbol into the Tom microphone, into the Tom microphone, and uh, that eventually leads to a certain negative side effect. So um, by spacing things out and bringing the cymbals up a touch higher, you can immediately uh, get a clearer sound through the microphones. It's easier to produce, it sounds better, and uh, therefore it is, um, I guess, a game of 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 trying to see what's possible no some um drummers set up their instruments perfectly fine and there's really nothing to to change but especially when drummers pack everything super tightly um i first think about or try to negotiate <laughs> in different placements see how high we can get the cymbals up before um, before we record and you know obviously uh, it's a give and take no? so uh, some players say nope uh, that can't be done it has to be so close that we have to live with that and, and deal with that later but that's not quite ideal so um, yeah so there's the instrument the player the player needs to be comfortable that's the most important rule now there's really no point getting the symbols up and getting a better sound if the player then misses them uh, when playing the takes so this is uh, a give and take and uh, my job is always to see how how I can get the most out of the instrument without making the player uncomfortable. Um, the playing strength uh, has a large effect on how how good um, a drum set sounds and how how much control a player has over um, how the cymbals and uh, drums are hit uh, again as a general rule i would say that um, experienced studio drummers um, are known to or uh, are know how to how to hit how loud to hit the instruments in certain environments and um, I would say that uh, it's a good idea to give the kicks and snares and toms or the drums a good strong hit. However, it is often a wise idea to hit um, the crash cymbals, um, uh, open hi-hats and sometimes also the ride, um, a little bit more piano, so not with full strength, because those elements can really overpower everything else, volume-wise, and um, that can then make it really hard to produce a really good sound. So, in my experience, uh, good studio drummers often know how to uh, take back the energy a little bit on crash cymbals and um, um, open hi hats. So, if you're a drummer and if this seems new to you, and um, if you're not quite sure how that uh, 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 how you're doing with that, here's a little trick. Next time you rehearse. Um, Just uh, bring a little microphone, put it on the other end of the room, a couple of meters uh, in a distance. It doesn't really matter what type of microphone it is. Uh, Plug it into your computer and hit record. And um, then later put on headphones and listen back to the recording. And uh, focus on the relative volume of all the drum elements to one another. And if you then hear that the crash cymbals really start to Overpower everything, that means you're probably hitting them too hard. So, in an ideal world, I want a drummer to basically give me a perfectly balanced um, drum mix uh, through their playing technique. Um, before you yell out and say, hey, wait a moment, I'm just the drummer, that's your job as the mix and recording engineer that's your job, Um, let me just push back on this a little and say you know, you still play into your overheads, you still play into your uh, room microphones, and while I can adjust the volume between a tom and a snare and a kick, of course uh, on the close microphones what comes through the overheads and the room microphones is basically the entire drum sound baked together and if then, uh, let's say it's China symbol or so really dominates and uh, overpowers the other instruments. That has a negative effect that I cannot control uh, to the full extent in in mixing and with digital plugins and so on later. So there's definitely a lot of value in playing uh, the drums so that they actually sound balanced and mixed uh, uh, through a microphone at a distance. Um, yeah. Um, Another thing to focus on is the volume difference between, let's say, the snare backbeat, which is often louder, and any ghost notes you may be playing. So if your microphone at a greater distance picks up the snare really loud, but the ghost notes don't really come through, or the rim clicks, if you play rim clicks, then uh, you may need to consider just um, yeah, focusing more in playing on... Um, the the relative volume and maybe just take it back a little bit on the weight of the backbeat hit, and see if you can just push the uh, ghost notes a little bit. Um, a little trick from um, myself when I play um, drums um, for recording. Um, you can also. Um, Uh, balance out the difference between the backbeat and the ghost notes by where you play them on the snare. So let me explain this in more detail. So there's typically a microphone on the snare top aiming um, into the drum head uh, somewhere. And when I play the backbeat, I typically try to hit the center of the snare where I get the chunkiest sound. Um, However, when I play ghost notes in between, um, I just move the stick a little bit out to the side, where I get more of the overtone of the snare and less of the fundamental. And in this case, I just move the stick a little bit closer to the microphone, which automatically makes the ghost notes that I play there a little bit louder. Um, on the microphone of course um, which is I guess uh, I guess in some way um, a compression technique <laughs> if you want to call it so through playing uh, so the backbeat goes straight into the center of the snare and the ghost notes I play a little bit closer to the drum microphone um, when you practice this technique be very careful not to hit the microphone of course that would not be worth it ok so I already spoke about the two um, most important um, corners of the first recording triangle. It's the instrument and the player, and I could probably go on and on and on. Similar things, of course, apply to, um, to guitar players, bass players, keyboard players, uh, pretty much everybody who plays singers, of course. Um, let's add the third corner of this triangle, the last corner of the... Um, triangle is the room in which the instrument is played and where it is played so um, while um, a close microphone on a snare drum or maybe even on a guitar cabinet might not pick much of the room other microphones may so if you have overheads if you have room microphones or if you actually set up a second uh, guitar cabinet microphone at a greater distance you will uh, definitely get a significant amount of the room mic uh, of the room sound Um, and therefore it is really important to consider where you record and how the room sounds and um, you will probably be able to hear the difference uh, very clearly just by taking a microphone at it place it a meter from your instruments, um, play for a moment and and hit record and see what happens. Um, There is a very good chance that if you then move your instrument in the room, you can also find certain spots where it sounds thinner or a bit flat or weightier or more alive. And uh, those things are very subjective, of course. So a little tip that I often use to um, figure out what's going on is to basically take a tom, often uh, the the floor tom, uh, before I set set up the drums and just literally take it for a walk uh, and hit it while I walk through the room. And depending on the size of your room, you may not find that it doesn't seem to make any difference at all. In this case, it really doesn't matter where you place uh, place your instrument and just start and, you know, start somewhere. But uh, in most cases, I find that it does make a bit of a difference. And uh, then I basically like to find the place in the room where I enjoy listening to the drum most. And that's typically where it sounds weighty, where it sounds balanced, where I get, you know, a bit of the room, not too much, where, um, yeah, it just feels good. Um, don't think about it too hard. It's not something that um, I would recommend thinking and analyzing too much. Just trust your gut feeling Um just take your instrument and move it around and see what happens. Uh, the same, of course, applies for guitar cabinets and bass cabinets. Um, uh, however, it might be a little bit trickier to move, you know, Marshall full stack around. Um, also, with guitar amplifiers, if it's a valve amp, be very careful moving those when they're running and warm. Um, but I know that uh, some um, uh, guitar cabinets um, or some guitar players have their own. Um, uh, road cases and road cases sometimes come on a base on wheels so if that's the case you may be able to just roll uh, the guitar amp uh, through the room and uh, try different places and you will be surprised it actually makes a difference sometimes just leaving it leaving it in the same place and just turning it sideways one way or the other might make a difference Um, When I listen to guitar cabinets I often think about the weight and chunk, uh, the the bottom end of the guitar, the weightiness uh, as one of the most important uh, elements. Uh, We could get technical here. that is often affected by what we call room modes, also known as standing waves, uh, inside rooms. And there are definitely, uh, yeah. To cut it really short, what what that means is that there are spots in the room where certain frequencies are stronger or weaker. Um, and if you place, um, let's say, the cabinet in a place where you know lots of the uh, standing waves null out, uh, you will typically get um, a sound that is too thin. Or the opposite may apply if you back it right against the wall or into the corner where most of the uh, standing waves are active. That often leads to a, a boomy, chunky, undefined sound. Chunky is, in this context, is actually not a positive thing, although I usually like the word chunky as a positive. But in this case, I mean, you know, it gets boomy, it gets undefined. So finding the right place is something that Mm, is worth considering and experimenting with so back to the triangle Um, we had the instrument the player and now the room these three things need to be considered and this is pretty much the musician's responsibility in the first place Um, my job as the recording engineer is to help the musicians and uh, make sure they you know Do all of these things and consider all of these three elements, um, the instrument, the player, and the room. Good. Let's assume we've gone through this, um, the player is really comfortable in the room the instrument sounds as good as it can we've tuned it up we worked on the drum heads we uh, worked on the guitar strings now the guitars uh, are set up correctly now there's a good string action happening everything is in tune the amps are warmed up we're ready to go and now it comes now we move From the first triangle into the second recording triangle. And again, there are three different elements that now come into place. And uh, this time, the responsibility is definitely with the recording engineer more than with the musician. The first corner of the second recording triangle is the microphone choice. So, which type of microphone are we going to use here? We could also talk about the number of microphones. Is one sufficient? Do we need more microphones? phones, um, that obviously depends very strongly on the signal, the instrument, and uh, what we're trying to achieve but uh, i would say that um, experienced recording engineers typically have a range of microphones to choose from and in their mind they sort of have like a map of how they each sound what their strengths and weaknesses are and uh, how to make good choices there so um, choosing the right microphone is not necessarily something that you can read up on and then you know it all it's probably somewhere between a science and an art form, because it's also very, very subjective. So um, I know some people who choose microphones that I personally don't like. And uh, I sometimes choose microphones that are uncommon uh, in other studios as well. So personal choice is definitely um, something very worth considering. So if you would like to know more about that, I would like to um, invite you to go back to the very beginning of this podcast series to episode Two, where um, yeah, I spoke about your microphone locker and uh, how you can spec up um, a, a really good co- collection of microphones, small but an effective collection that basically covers it all. So when it comes to the choice of microphone, I often think about uh, the microphones, they are basically our paintbrush. No? So while an artist, a painter, um, has a different uh, a selection of different paintbrushes to, to choose from, uh, as a recording artist, uh, we have our microphones to choose from to paint different sonic colors. So just to give you an example... Going back to the Flood Songs compilation again. <laughs> I hope you're not sick of me talking about it yet, um, because there will be heaps more to come. But anyway, back to the microphone show is when I recorded. Um Uh, Shane Murphy's song, Same Side. We had three vocalists around a piano and I decided to use dynamic microphones, in this case, for all three singers. And I had three different choices. Uh, Let me just see if I can recollect those. Uh, There was an SM7B, if I'm not mistaken, for Shane. For Pete, I actually can't remember what I used. It might get back to me later. But um, then for... um, For Kelly, the female singer, we used uh, an M88. And uh, this was something where I first started playing with the different microphones and wanted to hear different voices through each. But I knew pretty quickly that uh, Kelly, having the brightest uh, voice, um, I I wanted a microphone that sort of counterbalanced um, the natural tone of her voice. So I picked the M88, which is a microphone... uh, with a particularly unique bass response, which just added a certain fullness to her voice that would have been um, difficult to achieve otherwise. So there's just one example where I basically picked a microphone and uh, I often go by the concept of, of opposites attract so that's an underlying concept here opposites attract now if you have a bright sound source do not use a bright microphone because bright multiplied by bright becomes too bright when it's recorded and that's just a real pain to, to deal with later so generally speaking for um, a bright uh, signal I use a darker microphone and vice versa of course there are also exceptions good so that's the first corner of the second um, triangle the microphone choice that can be one that can be many uh, we think about the microphone types dynamic condenser ribbon we talk about uh, we think about whether it's one or many and um, yeah then we move on to the second corner which is the microphone placement so, when learning uh, the sound of microphones, it is important not only to throw a couple of microphones into the room and put them next to each other and make final judgments and say, okay, I like this, but I hate that, because each microphone sounds only as good as its placement is. So what I'm saying is that even if you place a microphone somewhere and it doesn't sound good, uh, you might uh, not see the full picture yet. Maybe the microphone is just placed in a spot of air where it's not really capturing what you want to hear. So my suggestion is to... um, put a microphone in front of your signal um, if you can put on headphones and adjust the volume very carefully keep it a bit on the loud side but obviously don't blow your ears away but you want to hear what the microphone hears fairly prominent in your in your cans And then simply grab the microphone uh, and move it around um, and place it uh, a little bit differently. Tilt it a bit sideways, upwards, downwards, increase distance, decrease distance, aim the microphone at different places of the sound source and you will hear how the microphone changes its its sound very significantly. So, yeah, um, what I'm trying to say is that uh, if a microphone let's say picks up too much bass on a guitar cabinet you may be able to just increase distance a little bit and you might find that you no, know, the the bottom end becomes more balanced uh, rather than being overpowering uh, just by taking it further away or you may want to aim it a bit closer to the center of the cone rather than towards the edge of or the surround of the cone where we often get a bit of a darker sound. So the microphone placement by itself is definitely not a science. That is what I would call art, because it only depends on the subjective uh, opinion of the person placing the microphones, and um, there is a lot that can be done. So even if you don't have a fully specced microphone locker with... um, A large collection of microphones, even if you just have a handful, just a 57 and maybe a pencil condenser or so, then with, you know, very few microphones and careful placement, you can probably get a really good result. So, again, the idea is that opposites attract. If your microphone <clears throat> sounds, let's say, a little bit too thin, then get it. Find a, find a spot of air where it captures more bass. If it sounds too dark, uh, find a different spot of air where you get a more balanced sound through the microphone. So, you can basically imagine the air being like a three-dimensional um, um, space of different colored sound spots each one has a different quality a different tone and um, finding the right one that matches the tone of the microphone is the key here good all right um a couple of things to to practice i would say Um, on a guitar cabinet just take a 57 if you have something or similar and then while a guitar player plays something rather consistent Um, long notes um, long sustained chords uh, work really well here take the microphone and pan it from the left side across the cone from the surround through the center back to the other side of the cone and uh observe what what a son- sonic difference it makes. Um, that's a really good thing to practice. You could also look at the cabinet and find out which of the drivers sounds best. Also an interesting thing to do. And then, of course, play with distance. Get the microphone really close, you know, um, bring it backwards. Um, you will then also find that uh, that, of course, affects the level. The further away you are, the quieter it gets. That is no surprise, I'm sure. Good, microphone choice was the first corner, microphone placement was the second corner of this triangle. Let's talk about the final one. The third corner is the preamp, and it's the preamp choice and the gain you set. In most home studios that is basically given because... Audio interfaces typically have one type of preamp, so that's the logical choice. There might not be alternatives, and the gain you apply is how far you turn it up. So again, this can be a very simple thing. When it comes to gain staging, the only firm rule is that if it clipped in your recording software, then you should probably redo the take um, after lowering the gain a little bit. But, um, assuming that you didn't clip your recording, you could still argue that there is uh, different opinions to be had about how far or how, how low uh, the gain should be. And, uh, of course, that is um, a very subjective thing yet again. In a professional studio, uh, chances are there are choices of preamps, so you can choose to either use, let's say, the console's preamp or external preamps. And um, an experienced recording engineer um, should know about the tone and pros and cons qualities of their um, preamps in the studio. So... To give you um, an example again, um, some of the preamps that I own are known to be a bit, um, uh, how do I say this, uh, a richer, warmer, woolly in tone. Uh, those are typical. typically the uh, preamps that I would call colorful. In many situations they use vintage technologies such as tubes, for example, or uh, transformers. Uh, transformers um, are not cheap and therefore um, those types of preamps are often a little bit dearer. In most uh, audio interfaces, the inbuilt preamps are of different uh, build uh, type. Um, they typically use solid-state technology, which is known to be very clean, pristine, um, but also not colourful. So. Um, There's nothing wrong about that, of course, because color can be added later. But um, when I choose my preamps, um, the coloration that a preamp adds is definitely on my mind. It sort of sets the direction in which you shape the sound to to a significant degree. So again, um, in my mind, I have a map of the tone of each um, preamp the pros and cons and qualities and i try to match them to the sound source as it comes through the microphone and i also try to match it to the sound that we envision so for let's say a metal production uh, my preamp choices might be different than um, for a jazz production good The amount of gain that a preamp can uh, supply is, of course, also a very important consideration. And um, for loud signals, that's usually not a problem, because you can always just turn your preamp down a little bit. And I would say that with a gain relatively low, all preamps that I am aware of these days typically perform pretty well. Um, It's when you push a preamp to its maximum that you really find its strength or weaknesses Um, and that often means um, in situations where the gain is pretty much close to the maximum position. That's typically where I find that a preamp is uh, not performing too well or might be, you know, pushed to its limits. Um, warning signs to to, uh, look out for when you turn a preamp up to the absolute maximum. Um, How much louder did the signal get? And uh, do you hear more or less noise than before? I find that a lot of preamps, um, if you just cane them up the last couple of clicks, gain, of course, more level gain. Uh, But the noise that is added often raises disproportionately large on the last couple of clicks Um, that is not always the case of course that really depends on the preamp but um, especially the cheaper ones um, yeah they often don't perform too well when maxed out so in a case like this I would like to choose Definitely a quality preamp, Um, one that I used just yesterday in a recording session, Um, one that I really love is my uh, Focusrite ISA, I've got a stereo unit and uh, I find that uh, when I have to record a really quiet signal, when I need heaps and heaps of of gain, that's uh, a preamp that actually behaves really well, even pushed to fairly extreme settings while other preamps start to break up and show their ugly side, so to speak. Hmm? Um, Good. So, yeah. um, What can you do if you find that your preamp gain is in an uncomfortable spot um, and it's not sounding very good right now? Um, You need to go back to the other two uh, corners of your... um, recording triangle, the microphone choice, and the placement. So the option one could be turn your preamp gain uh, back down and get your microphone closer to the sound source. Um, which means the microphone will capture a louder signal, the microphone will therefore produce a louder output, more voltage coming through the microphone cable, and therefore it might bring your preamp gain back into a place where the preamp is happier and where you may, you may get a better sound. But the nature of these triangles that I'm discussing today is that every corner when you play with it affects the other ones. So as you change the microphone placement, you obviously change the sound that you capture. So maybe by getting it closer, you might get now too much proximity or you no longer have the room you wanted. So if that's not working for you, then you just need to replace the microphone with another one and see if that leads to a better result. Again, in episode number 2, we spoke about microphone choices already, and I touched on the subject of microphone sensitivity. Microphone sensitivity is basically a measure of how much voltage a microphone produces on its output, giving a standardized input uh, signal. And some microphones are hotter, more sensitive, uh, than others. So, the typical example of a sensitive microphone is a large diaphragm condenser. They are usually um, fairly strong in output. Um, While um, another example, let's say a microphone that has a low sensitivity, therefore produces just a little bit of voltage on the output, could be, let's say, a kick microphone. So, kick microphones or drum microphones in general are typically designed with a lower sensitivity, so they can handle loud loud sound sources without. producing too much voltage for the preamp to handle so um, a bad example would be using a kick microphone to record a a quiet whistle at 2 meters distance now we have a very quiet sound source plus a microphone that by nature produces a very low output um, and combined together low signal quality a microphone of less sensitivity means your preamp has to do all the heavy lifting and get this tiny amount of voltage up to uh, line level and that would typically uh, push most preamps uh, out of their comfort zone into the extremes where they probably misbehave pretty badly so um, that's an example where things don't work too well so if you want to record a quiet whistle uh, of course you first need a quiet room of course Uh, ambient noise will become an issue Um, whenever you record something quiet But in a case like this, I would definitely choose a more sensitive microphone, like uh, my large diaphragm condensers, and they then uh, produce a higher or healthier signal at the output, which is easier for the preamps to gain up to level. So the underlying principle is they take a loud sound source, and um, pair it with a microphone of a lower sensitivity or take a quiet sound source and pair it with a more sensitive microphone. Uh, This underlying principle sort of keeps your your preamps in their comfort zone and you probably will not end up using the extremes. Um, extreme, Extreme low or extreme high settings. Um, One thing that I haven't touched on yet, and we should also mention this quickly, if we had a loud sound source and a sensitive microphone, um, let me just come up with an example uh, that could be, let's say, a guitar cabinet, they can get really loud, or a kick drum, or uh, horns like a trombone. Uh, they can produce a a fair bit of sound pressure level. If you now have a sensitive microphone at a close distance, um, the output of the microphone might be too hot for the preamp to handle, means that the preamp gain may still be all the way down uh, and it's already clipping. So in a case like this, um, you could now back off the microphone, increase the distance, which will then also sound roomier, Uh, But there's another option that we typically um, can uh, rely on. Most preamps have what we call a pad. Um, Sometimes it's called negative 10 button, or negative 20, or negative 15, something like that. Um, And also some microphones, especially condenser microphones, may have a pad built in. Um, If I have both available, a pad on the mic and on the preamp, I typically start with the preamp first. That's a personal choice. Uh, Others may disagree, but um, yeah, that's usually where I start. And if the signal is still too hot, I then move on and uh, also engage the pad on the microphone. So, those are now different concepts uh, to pretty much gain stage the signal the signal's volume and the microphone and the preamp and keep everything in a comfort zone so the most important thing is to capture healthy levels without pushing your preamps into the extremes that's that's the underlying concept here and if you have a chance uh, to choose or try different preamps it's definitely worth checking uh, if you can't hear a difference uh, don't worry about it too much just move on uh, and go on with your life uh, get the recording done in many situations when we talk about audio interfaces, the preamps don't they are not designed to have a, a, a noticeable color in sound. It's often the outboard preamps um, that add a certain color more than the ones built into interfaces. I should wave a little flag. There are exceptions, of course. Okay, so let's just sum it up one more time. Two different triangles were discussed today. The first recording triangle was all on the musician's side, with the three corners, instrument, player and room. Now, all of them affect one another, and um, well-considered, um, well-specked out, this triangle can... Um, yeah really change the way you capture your sound and uh, if something is out of whack here you probably fight an uphill battle from that moment on and the second one was the recording triangle or it's more the recording engineers uh, triangle to consider the microphone choice the microphone placement and then the preamp choice and the suitable gain Good. Um, yeah, I hope this is useful to you. i just trying to share all my insight uh, on how I set up recording sessions. Um, as always, I'm pretty sure there are some people who say, no, nope, it's all different. Uh, I perceive this differently. And that's all a lie. That's fine with me. Have your own opinion on these things. Uh, the, that's a good thing in my books. But today I shared what I do and how I like it and what's on my mind when I uh, set up recording sessions in professional studio environments. Okay, I hope this was useful to you. If you disagree, please um, let me know. Uh, There is, of course, the Production Talk podcast community page on Facebook where things can be discussed. So if you believe I missed something important or if you have a very different opinion, um, please feel free to post there and let's discuss it. If you want to reach out to me you can of course do so via my website mixartist.com.au, where you will find studio recording services in the northern rivers in uh, on the east coast of Australia. We basically service a range basically from Brisbane down all the way to Grafton and Coffs Harbour. Uh, and in between, of course. And on my website you can also find uh, a page for professional mix-down services, which is available to everybody worldwide. So that's called Remote Mixing, somebody sends me files, um, and we'll have a chat about what you want and how you want it to sound, and then you'll get a finished mix back. Uh, And of course, if you want to just uh, talk and chat, you can also reach out to me via my website. There's a contact form and I'm looking forward to hearing from you. That's all for today. I hope that you enjoyed this episode. I shall speak to you again next week. Bye for now.